All right, well, most of you watch uh, Pastor Tom, I'm sure, on his channel. Now, he hasn't announced to you yet, has he, about the new program we're doing on Tuesday? Has he said anything at all? No? Okay, well, two, week, two weeks from Tuesday, we start another program. You know, Tom's on from 10 to 11 every Tuesday, from 11 to 12, two weeks from the um, day after tomorrow. We're going to start a second live program, a second hour of live programs. If you haven't watched his channel, those... Uh, watching. Uh, we do a, a program called Breaking News. I do it Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Tom on Tuesday from 10 to 11. This will be 11 to noon on Tuesdays, and we hope to make it across the board, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, also on Tuesdays. Now, the first one will be two weeks, and um, James Cadiz is the host, and Pastor Tom will be his guest. So Tom, yeah, so Tom is not only going to do Breaking News, as soon as that's over, he's going to go over to the next studio, because we've got a new studio right there, right around the curtain, and he's going to sit down with James, and they'll do an hour with this new program. Now, according to the, uh, uh, they've just sent out the message to everybody on his channel that's on their mailing list, I w I'm going to announce the name of it tomorrow, of the new program. I'm tempted to do it tonight, but, but I've said I would do it live the first time to everybody, so if you want to watch tomorrow about 10.30, I'll do it. And the studio, let me tell you, the, um, the, the whole set is absolutely gorgeous. You think our breaking news set is great looking? That one is a knockout. So it's going to be a great program, a one-hour program, uh, starting a week from Tuesday. And then hopefully we will expand it. So we'll have it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So literally, then it would be eight uh, hours plus world news briefing, nine hours of uh, live breaking biblical news every single week. Isn't that be great? And so we're excited about that. So... Yeah, pray for that. It's really, really, really exciting we're, we're doing that. Anyway, tonight what I thought I'd do, I, and I don't think I've done this here before. In fact, Craig said I haven't. I can't remember because uh, I, I speak so many places, I never write down what I do. But uh, I remember I did a, a Sunday night for you where I did my new book, uh, 25 Signs Were Near the End, and did all 25 signs. But I don't think I've done a talk where I did signs just one, two, and three. Have I? Okay, good, good, because that, that is uh, what I want to do tonight. It's usually my opening talk and introduction to the subject, and so we'd like to uh, set the table with you for that. We did two weeks ago sign number eight, which was the coming temple, the preparations for that, but this is the introduction to the whole thing. And basically, uh, here's how, let me explain the genesis of all this, how it happened. As we get closer and closer to the time of the end, uh, God provides signs, signs around you know, the world that we can see, signs that are listed in his word. So what I did, I took 25 specific signs that we see in scripture and, not, and uh, you know, shared what the scripture says and what we should expect the world to be like in the last days. Not only that, I did something, I mentioned this two weeks ago, not only with the uh, signs that were there from the Bible, but also ancient Bible commentators that uh, saw these signs years and years ahead without ever seeing them literally, but believing in their heart they would come, come about. So tonight what we're going to do, I'm going to just get the introduction to it, the first three, and actually sign number one and sign number two is what kept these people going. Like I think I told you two weeks ago, I bought about 30 books written anywhere from like 80 years ago to 300 years ago by people looking forward to the days in which you and I live. 
And they saw most of it by faith. They only saw a couple things by sight. In fact, they saw signs one and two, and we're going to get into that tonight. But it shows you that people who trust the Lord, sooner or later, God's word will come to pass. And the reason we do this is not just to fill your heads with what's going to take place in the last days. This is very, very practical, because every single time we have a prophetic message from God about something that's going to take place in the future, it always has something to do with a personal need that people have, as we're going to see that tonight. In other words, it wasn't just, you know, God's just going to do something. It always fulfills a particular need, either an individual or a nation. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis? I'm going to read that very famous passage, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And as we're doing this, um, what I also want to emphasize is even though we have 25 signs, it's not just 25 specific points. Under sign number one, you will find we will have four points. Under sign number two, seven, and under uh, six, and under sign number three, seven. So in other words, as we saw last week, we have eight or nine points under sign number eight of the temple that we look for. So there's many specific things that the Bible predicts that the world will be like in the last days. And we're going to set the table here with the first one. We call it the miracle of Israel's survival. And we find this from the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All right, so we have some specific promises made to this man named Abram. And the first thing God said, leave your country, leave your family, I'm going to make a great nation from you. Now, as we read Genesis, some real interesting things happen. Abram and his wife Sarah got older and older, and God had not come through with the promise. So eventually, Abram said, well, Lord, how about Eleazar, my servant? Let him be my heir. In that day, it was really interesting because we know what time Abram lived in history. Uh, they had a law, and the law said if, if a couple could not conceive, then their servant could actually take on that, the name, and, and he would be the one that would inherit everything down the line. So this was available. But God said, no, Abram, this is going to be someone from your particular, one of your offsprings. Abram said, okay, fine. Well, later, no child yet, right? So his wife, Sarah, said, well, why don't you raise up a child from, you know, Hagar, you know, servant girl, and that'll be the fulfillment. Well, uh, Abraham, you know, and uh, did that with Hagar. A son named Ishmael was born. And God said, no, not him either. It's going to be one from you and Sarah. Yet they're getting beyond the childbearing years. Finally, when they got way beyond the childbearing years, God appeared to Abram, and then he did this. He said, your name is no longer Abram, but Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude. So from now on, you're father of a multitude. Now, can you imagine? I've often wondered, uh, after that happened, Abram hanging around with some of his friends around the tent, and they say, what's new, Abram? And he says, funny you should ask. God just appeared to me, and he said, you're not to call me Abram anymore. My name is now Abraham, father of a multitude. My descendants are going to be as many as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. And also, too, God said, my name will be made great. My name will be blessed. You ever wonder what the response of Abram's friends would be at that time? I mean, they look at him. They say, Abram, you've been in the sun too long. Come on. Look at yourself. Uh, you're too old to have children. You don't have any children. You're not father of a multitude. You're father of, you know, one Ishmael through Hagar. And Abram said, no, I'm Abraham. Well, right after that, 
soon they had a child, uh, Sarah and Abraham, and they called his name Isaac, and he was the son of promise. So the first thing we see is the nation that was started supernaturally, begotten in a miraculous way, when physically they were beyond the childbearing years. That's the first thing we note. Now, we also note something else. God said to Abram, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Your name is going to be made great. Now, we've talked about this before with you, but it's worth repeating. Today, here in the year 2018, if you were just counting noses around the world, in the area of religion, the most respected name in the entire world is the name of Abraham. He is numero uno because Jews, Christians, and Muslims all look to him as a human founder of, of their faith. Now remember, Jews do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, so they don't respect him. Now Muslims have him as a prophet, but Jews, Christians, and Muslims all look to Abraham as the founder of the faithful, the man who believed God and uh, made the move into the promised land. So think about this for a second. 4,200 years ago, God made this promise to this man named Abram that his name would be made great. Here we are in the year 2018, and if we're just counting noses around the world in the area of religion, his name is still number one. Now, I think that's rather good, don't you? That's quite, quite amazing. So God is two for two so far. Now, there's something else here, and this is where it comes down, and this is where God works with each and every one of us, gang, where there's a real need, and you need hope. You need God's hope. Uh, the nation did grow, uh, and uh, basically they entered the promised land. They eventually had kings rule over them, but the kingdom split after the death of Solomon in two sections, the ten northern tribes of Israel, the two southern tribes of Judah. Israel had nothing but evil kings. They're eventually taken into captivity in about 721 BC by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted a little longer because they had good kings, but eventually they were to go into captivity too. And God lifted up a prophet named Jeremiah to tell them they were going to go into captivity. Now, here, in what Jeremiah did in Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37, is made a couple of predictions here that are very much to the point. Now, these people did not believe Jeremiah. They did not think they were going to go into captivity, but they did. And so when they did, they would remember this, this prediction, because until that time and afterwards, a nation had never been removed from their homeland going into captivity and ever came back. Jeremiah said, you're going to come back, but it's going to be 70 years. So go there, get married, you know, uh, plant farms, you know, build houses, have children, because it's going to be, you're going to be there 70 years, but you will, will come back. But listen to what he says in Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37, about the fact that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are always going to exist as a distinct people. The Lord has made a promise to Israel. He promises it as the one who fixed the sun to give light by day and the moon and stars to give light by night. He promises it as the one who stirs up the sea so that its waves roll. He promises it as the one who is known as the Lord who rules over all. The Lord affirms, the descendants of Israel will not cease forever to be a nation in my sight. That could only happen if the fixed ordering of the heavenly lights were to cease to operate before me. The Lord says, I will not reject all of the descendants of Israel because of all they have done. That could only happen if the heavens above could be measured or the foundations of the earth below could all be explored, says the Lord. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. All right, basically, here's what he said. Even though you're going to be removed from your land, you're going to be brought back, but also you are going to stay together as a nation. You will never cease to exist. Now, this is a huge promise because... Again, the false prophets were saying, you're not going to go 
to, you know, to Babylon, yet the entire nation did. The city and temple would be destroyed. But when they went, and when they remembered, the only prophet that said this is going to happen is the prophet Jeremiah. The same prophet said that God's going to bring you back, and you will never cease to exist. So again, like Abraham got hope with his wife Sarah in the birth of a child, there's hope for the people here now that God is going to take care of them in the future, and that's exactly what happened. So we have a third specific promise. His descendants would always exist. Now, a fourth promise here, not only would they always exist, but they would be around in the very last days before God's kingdom came to earth. In other words, the Jews not only would exist, but they would be around at the time of the end and actually be uh, center stage for all the events that are going to take place. In the book of Daniel, chapter 12, as Daniel is winding up, he is talking about the future of the nation of Israel. He's writing about 530 years before the time of Christ. And in chapter 12, verse 1, he talks about a time of great distress or great tribulation that will take place. And he says, at that time, Michael the archangel, who stands guard over your nation, will arise. Then there will be a time of great anguish, greater than that since any nation ever came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people, whose name is written in the book, will be rescued. Now, you note something here. He said, the angel who guards over your nation, Daniel, which is Israel, at the time of the end, your nation, Israel, will have a time of great distress, great trouble, or great tribulation, but every one of your people whose name is written in the book will survive. So again, the promise that Israel will not only exist at the very time of the end, Israel, even though they'll have the, this horrible time of trouble, they will be rescued at that particular time. Now what's interesting, Jesus talked about the same time period in Matthew 24, 21 in the New Testament. He called it the Great Tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called the uh, 70th week of Daniel. Uh, one of the things Jesus said that was very interesting about this time in Matthew 24, 20, he said, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. In other words, when this T terrible time comes at the time of the end before God's kingdom comes to earth when this great tribulation arises pray that it doesn't happen it doesn't begin when it's the Sabbath and why did he say that he said because on the Sabbath there's certain rules and regulations that observant Jews you know observe and one of it is oh, they can walk a certain distance they can only do so much and pray that this won't happen on a day when the Sabbath is being kept now this got came home to me very very uh, um, real. Uh, my first trip to Israel in 1976, I was, uh, you know, was, I was just thrilled to death to be there in the city of Jerusalem, and uh, it was the first Sabbath day. It was Saturday morning, and I'm going down to breakfast, and th the place we stayed at, it was, it was one of these ones, like, it had nine or ten stories, and they could put us, like, the ninth story or something like that. We're real, real high. Anyway, it was an interesting experience because uh, you know, I'm going to take the elevator down the stairs. I see all oh, the doors already open. That's nice. I get in it quick before it closes. So I get in, and the thing shuts behind me, and I notice that every floor is punched. There's a light on every floor. And I go, wait a minute. What in the world is this? I didn't punch anything. I'm, in, I'm locked in here now, and every floor is punched. So anyway, it comes off, you know, and it opens to the next floor. Nobody's there, you know. I just look around for a minute, you know, thing closes. We go to the next floor, like floor seven, a bunch of people get in. You say, you know, Boker Tov, good morning, or bonjour, or good morning. It depends where they're from, you know, or hello if they're Americans. And, uh, you know, you, you, you do that. And every single floor, the thing stopped. And then it was, it was something else. I thought, this, this is something. I didn't, I've never seen this before. And so I got to the bottom. Then I realized I'd left something in the room. 
that I had to go up and get. I thought, oh no, this is not going to repeat itself going up as, oh yes it did. So I went all the way back up, all the way back down. It literally took me about 25 minutes. So once I got back down, you know, again, I, I, I had to have an idea or something. That's why I got back to the room. I went to the front desk. I said, would you please tell me what's the deal with this elevator? And they just started laughing because they have this happen all the time. Well, that's the Shabbat elevator, the Sabbath elevator. I said, well, I saw that. What does that mean? Well, they said, you know, according to the Bible, you're not to do any work on the Sabbath. And it's been determined that pressing a button in an elevator is work. And so, uh, so you don't become a Sabbath breaker. The elevator stops at every floor for you. I said, really? He said, yes. But he said, if you would have looked a little down the hall, there's a Gentile elevator that goes straight to the bottom. <laughs> Thanks. So anyway, what's hilarious now, I've been there 18 times now to Israel. We always tell our people about it. But it's so funny to watch them all get in the Sabbath elevator when it's, you know, Saturday morning. And we just, I just smile. and so said, we'll see you in a half hour. So they don't, what? We tell them, they don't listen. But anyway, but here's what hit me. Here it was, 1976. I'm in Israel, and guess what? They're still keeping the Sabbath, as Jesus said. I thought, whoa, here we are 2,000 years removed from the time of Christ. And he said, at the time of the end, pray that this won't happen on the Sabbath. Why? There will be Sabbath observers. Isn't that interesting? So, again, uh, all these things specifically that the Bible talks about. Now, the conclusion is that Jewish people will exist in the last days according to the Bible. This is called the miracle of Israel's survival. One of the interesting things I did uh, is, like I said, record these writers that lived anywhere from, you know, 80 years ago to like 300 years ago. And the things that kept them going, there were two things that kept them going. That's sign number one and sign number two of our 25 signs. And the first one was this, <clears throat> the fact that they saw Israel survive. I want you to listen to J.C. Ryle. He is a British commentator living in about the middle of the 19th century. Okay, And he's observing something that all, in fact, I've got an appendix in the book that deals with about a dozen different commentators, all saying the same thing in their own unique way. But here was his observation, and listen carefully, it's, it's amazing. He says, but though Israel has been scattered, Israel has not been destroyed. For 1,800 years, the Jews have continued as a separate people, without a king, without a land, without a territory, but never lost, never absorbed among the nations. They've often been trampled underfoot, but never shaken from the faith of their fathers. They've often been persecuted, but never destroyed. At this very moment, they are as distinct and peculiar a people as any people upon the earth. An unanswerable argument in the way of the infidel, a puzzling difficulty in the way of politicians, a standing lesson to all the world. Now, here comes his punchline. Listen to this. Romans, Danes, Saxons, Normans, Belgians, French, Germans have all in turn settled on British soil. All of them in turn have lost their national distinctiveness. Uh, all of them in turn have become part and parcel of the English nation after a lapse of a few hundred years, but it has never been so with the Jews. Dispersed as they are, there is a principle of cohesion among them which no circumstances have been able to melt. Scattered as they are, there is a national vitality which is stronger than that of any nation on the earth. Settle where you, settle where you please, in hot countries or in cold, you will find the Jews. But go where you will and settle where you please. This wonderful people is always the same. 
Scattered as they are, few in number compared to among those whom they live, the Jews are always the Jews. 3,000 years ago, Balaam said, the people shall dwell alone and not be reckoned among the nations. We have seen these words made good before our eyes. Close quote. All right, what an amazing observation. Now here's, here he is, 18 centuries from the time the Jews have had their city destroyed, the temple destroyed. Wherever you find them around the world, they were literally scattered to the four corners of the earth. They always are the same. They look the same. They dress the same. They kept their laws. They've kept all their traditions. They never were absorbed among the nations. But like he said in England, all these other people groups that came to England are now British. They're, they're English. The Jews are always a separate people. And so here's what it spoke to these commentators. Well, if that's the case, if they're kept as a distinct people, then someday, someday the promise that God made to them, they're going to come back to their land, will make sense because they will come back as a distinct people. And this is something that kept them going because of all the stuff they went through, they still remain. Of course, he didn't live to see what happened, you know, in the 20th century with two world wars, and particularly the Holocaust of World War II. So the first sign is the miracle of Israel's survival. Now, the second sign we call this, as their enemies have done to Israel, so God will do to them. As their enemies have done to Israel, so God will do to them. All right, in Genesis 12, we also read this. I will bless those that bless you, God said to Abram, and I will curse those that curse you. All right, interesting. In the Old Testament, we find a number of people groups who attempted to curse Israel, who tried to wipe them out, who tried to destroy them, tried to thwart them, fulfilling the plan of God, including the Amalekites, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. Five different groups, as we read through the Old Testament, that all tried to thwart the plan of God to Israel. And in uh, all of these nations, after they did this, God specifically pronounced judgment on each and every one of them. The Philistines, the Amalekites, Ammonites, Edomites, Moabites, you will no longer exist because you have tried to, you know, basically eradicate my people Israel. In a book written in 1995 called The Archaeology of Society in the Holy Land, listen to what the authors said. By the time of Roman rule, around 63 BC, the people of Ammon, Edom, and Moab had lost their distinct identities and were assimilated into Roman culture, close quote. No more Ammon, no more Edom, no more Moab. Same was true with Amalek and Philistia. You have never met an Amalekite today. You've never met an Edomite, a Moabite, a Philistine. They do not exist anymore as distinct people because God specifically said, I will bless those that bless and curse those that curse. Now, this was observed by these commentators too, but something else also got them, and that is this, that there is an exception to those nations who attempted to destroy Israel in the past or treat them wrong, that God is going to keep around for the last days, and that is the nation of Egypt. According to Isaiah 19, 19 to 22, in the last days, not only will Egypt still exist, there will be a revival in the country. They will build a monument to the Lord. In other words, Egypt will still be around at the time of the end, but these other five nations will not. All right, let me ask you this. Are there still Egyptians today? Yeah, sure are. James Cadiz is an Egyptian who's going to do the program. They still exist. And so, if my math is right, God said Israel's going to exist and, at the, and remain at the time of the end. Egypt's going to exist and be there at the time of the end. But these other five will cease to exist. Uh, it looks like God's seven for seven, right? 
Now, think about that for a second. What are the odds by chance of that happening when we think of the predictions were made anywhere basically from about 2,500 years ago to 4,000 years ago? Pretty good, but we're just beginning here. So that's number two, as God has, you know, as nations do to Israel, so God will do to them. The big sign is number three, and that is this, that Israel will miraculously return to its ancient homeland in the last days will be miraculously returning to its homeland, something that is incredible. Because remember, never once had a nation been removed and came back. It did it once under the Babylonian captivity. But also, uh, God promised they would come back a second time. When the people rejected Jesus, remember in the last week of his life, he pronounced judgment on them. In Luke 21, 24, here's what the Lord said to the nation. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem would be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, there's two things in here. Number one, the people are going to be scattered. God's going to scatter them to all nations, not just Babylon now, to all nations, okay? But they're not rejected by the Lord. There'll be a time when they will return. So the promise here that Jesus made is one, immediate judgment. But number two, there's a time when uh, they will return to their ancient homeland, when Jerusalem has not been trampled down. Okay, so two promises there. There's a third promise here about that. They will return in the last days, the very last days. When they do return to their ancient homeland, it won't be 100 years after they're scattered or 200 years. It'll be at the very time of the end. Now, this is crucial because the promise of their return is only at the time when the stage is being set for the Lord to return. In Ezekiel 38, 8, Twice in the very same verse, God through the prophet Ezekiel says the return of Israel to the land will be at the time of the end. Here's what they, God says. After many days, you will be summoned. In the latter, he's speaking this, this leader, Gog, this leader of this invasion, invading force. After many days, you will be sub, summoned. In the latter years, you will come to a land restored from the ravages of war with many people gathered on the mountains of Israel that had long been in ruins. Its people were brought out from the peoples, and all of them will be living securely, Ezekiel 38.8. So according to this verse, twice he says this invasion is going to take place at the time of the end in the last days. So the return won't take place. It will happen. God isn't through with them, but it will only come at the very time of the end. Now a fourth promise here, which we just read in this context, the people will be gathered to the land from all nations, not just Babylon, where they were there for 70 years. This is a second exile and a second return from all nations. As one translation put it, its people have returned from the foreign nations where they once lived. So the people will come back in the last days, but not just from one place, from literally all around the world. Now a fifth promise here, the land they return to will not be the land of milk and honey. This will be a land that's been made desolate. The holy land which they will travel has been made, will be a des have been made desolate for a long time, and it will be recovering from wars. In other words, when they come back, they won't come back to the land that you know uh, the spies and Joshua and Caleb saw, a land of milk and honey, a land of desolate. And then we're told this, and this is fascinating, Isaiah 11 and 11, 12 says, when they come back, it is from the four corners of the earth, but from specifically, he says, a second exile. A second exile, they will come back to the land. And so their return to a desolate land specifically said in Isaiah 11, 11, 12, a second exile. And then a final prediction, 
Once they come back, they'll never be removed. Once they get back, never be removed. That's Amos 9, 14, and 15. They'll come back the lamb, never be removed. So here's what's promised to Israel in Scripture. Number one, they're going to be scattered for rejecting Jesus. Jesus predicted that. But number two, God isn't through with them. God's not rejected them. They will return to the land, but it will only be in the last days, in the very last days. And when they do show up, it'll be from many nations they come, but the land won't be the land of milk and honey. It'll be a land devastated by war. When they do return, it'll be a second time from a second exile. And once they get back, once they get back, they will be there for good, back in the land for good. A Bible commentator, Elhanan Winchester, in his book, A Course of Lectures on Prophecies that Remain to be Fulfilled, said this, Nothing need to be more plainly declared than this that the Jews shall certainly return to and possess their own land again, notwithstanding their long captivity and utter dispersion. Moses, that great prophet, spoke of these events in various places and expressly declared that it should take place in the latter days. All right, nothing be more plainly stated than this. They're going to come back. They're going to come back in the last days. Um, the Jews will return in the last days. We've quoted him two weeks ago. Helen Winchester wrote that in the year 1789. 1,700 years after they're scattered, nothing can be more plainly stated than this. They're going to come back, but it's going to be in the last days. All right, so we know the prediction of commentary. We mentioned that two weeks ago. Uh, many commentators made the same thing. It's just an observation from Scripture. So they will return. They will return in the last days. So what happened? Verdict. Number one, they were scattered, as Jesus predicted. He died uh, in AD 33, April 3rd, AD 33. Some uh, 37 years later, they were scattered with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple, which we had the, two, the anniversary of that, you know, of, of Tisha B'Av, when we did the talk two weeks ago. And that happened in the year AD 70. So they were scattered, but God was not through with them. Again, uh, our first sign, the miracle of Israel's survival. They're still existing as a distinct people from the four corners of the earth. They're still there uh, whenever people saw them. Now, what they didn't see is something we have seen. That is these commentators. They have returned in the last days. Yes, we've just celebrated their 70th anniversary in their return to the land. They have come from many nations. Uh, again, you go into Israel, you see people from many nations. They have returned to a land that's been decimated, devastated by war. In other words, not the land of milk and honey. It, it's amazing how this was all turned around. Uh, Mark Twain in his book, The Innocence Abroad, described Israel as a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but has given, been given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse, a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route, Hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere, even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. This was 150 years ago when he said that in his book, The Innocence Abroad. And so when they did return, they returned to a land of desolation, just like the Bible said. However, uh, what we do know also, um, they... <laughs> This is not one of the signs. This, well, actually, it is, but we, didn't, we, we limit it to seven. They're going to create great wealth there. This is the, what we get this from Ezekiel 38, and that's the reason for the invasion. And as we mentioned you two weeks ago, they're going to create great wealth. Well, here they come back to a land basically that's been devastated, decimated by war. And today, Israel is the eighth most powerful country in the world, number eight, after some 70 years. Absolutely miraculous. And so just as the Bible said, they come back to a desolate land, and they build it up. 
and uh, they create great wealth. Now, the, what's really interesting here about the second exile, they're going to return from a second exile from Isaiah 11, 11, and 12. What's fascinating about that is when Isaiah wrote this, they had even gone into the first exile. He wrote about 700 BC. The first exile wouldn't be for another 100 years after his time. But then he wrote about a second exile in the last days. Now, follow me here for a second. Isaiah said they're going to go into two exiles. The first, and Jeremiah said it's going to be for 70 years. And Isaiah said a king named Cyrus is going to be the one. Isaiah 44, 28 through 45, Cyrus is going to be the one that allows you to return from this first exile. However, in the very last days, there's going to be another exile. But at that exile, it won't be from Babylon you return. It's from the four corners of the earth. So here's a prediction of a return from a second exile before they'd even gone into a first one. Now, again, remember this. No nation's ever been removed once from their homeland, ever come back. See the message of hope God is giving to this people. See what kept them going all these centuries. See why the Jewish people would read this and realize, look, we've been in one exile. There's going to be another one we're going to return from. We return from the first one. And the, the Christians looked at that too and said, yeah, God is fulfilling all of this as they come back in the last days to their land, come back, as we talked about two weeks ago, in unbelief of Jesus. And then God starts to work with them again. And like we talked about a couple weeks ago, once in the land, they shall never, ever, ever, ever be removed. And here they are again. We've just celebrated their seventh anniversary as a modern state. So just to put this into context here, in some kind of context, in these first three signs I've given you, all right, the first one had four points under it, all right? Abram, great nation, his name's going to be made great, the people are going to exist, they're going to exist in the last days, four for four. Sign number two, six specific nations, their future. Five of them will cease to exist, one will exist in the last days. What do we see? The five cease to exist, Egypt still exists. And then the third sign, a miraculous return in the last days. Scattered, God is not through with them. They're going to come back in the land in the last days, come back from the four corners of the earth, and we can add also to create, uh, even though they're coming to a land that's been devastated, they're going to create great wealth. And when they come back, it's going to be from a second exile, not a first one. And Isaiah said that when they hadn't even gone to one, and then they'll never be uprooted again. And so just these three signs here that we've mentioned here very quickly to you tonight, 17 specific points. I mean, these are specific predictions. These aren't general predictions that God has made, and every single one of them has come to pass literally just as the Bible said. So here's, here's what we're looking at. I want you to think for a minute uh, with me on this. Uh, the fact that even one or two of them might have been fulfilled miraculously is amazing, but all... 17, this is, not, this is not by chance. This is God doing. This is a God controlling history. But now, let's get real personal here, because this is why I love doing Bible prophecy. It's not just to tell you what's going to happen in the future. It's not just to you know, kind of uh, satisfy your curiosity. Look what God is doing. He's telling us this. When he says something, he means it. He means what he says, and he says what he means. His word means exactly this. The promises he gives each and every one of us are for good. They're for, their, for us. Now, let's personalize this. 
Each of us, as we go through life, we face difficulties and face some very, very difficult times. And some that are basically, we wonder how we're ever going to even get through it. But God has made certain promises that he's going to start us in this life and he's going to bring us to bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6, he began a good work, he's going to bring it to completion. He said he's never going to leave us, he's never going to forsake us. He says if we cast our care upon him, we should because he cares for us. And he gives us these promises over and over and over again. Now, as we said, historically, this is what kept the people of Israel going, the people in captivity, that they would return someday. This was what kept the Jews after the second exile for almost 2,000 years together, having the promise that someday they would return against all odds of history. And the Christians, having the New Testament, understood why the, why the second exile took place. The Jews you know, had all kinds of different theories. They couldn't figure out why this would take place. But again, they had hope. And see, here's what God is doing in his word. By telling us what's going to happen in the future, by setting the stage right in front of our eyes, he's giving us hope that what we believe is not nonsense. What we believe is true. We are not assassinating our brains to be a Christian. We're not putting our mind on the shelf. We're actually looking at the evidence and observing the world that's there, and it says God is working his plan here. Now, not only that, but also in our lives. So this is why this material to me is is very, very much wonderful. Because the same God who made these promises, he's promised to Abraham, to Sarah, to Israel, to on and on, has made promises to you and promises to me. And he's going to keep them. He, really, he is. Now, he's going to do it in his time, not your time or my time, but he's going to come through with the promises. He is indeed a faithful God. So as we think about what God has done in the past, what he's doing right now when setting the stage, I want each and every one of us to realize tonight, no matter what's going on in our life, what we came in here with, what we're facing that we serve a God who is faithful, a God who will bring us to where we need to be, a God who will never leave us, never forsake us, never, ever, ever let us down. And that's the God who we worship. That's the God who we serve. We see this happening historically. We see it happening right now, but we see it too in our own lives. I was talking to my wife about this, about how as, you know, the older we get, the more we can look back at our lives and connect the dots and see how God has allowed certain things to happen. And we see the wisdom of it, at, while at the time it seemed ridiculous. It seemed hard, harsh, horrifying. But we now see what God is doing. Now, in some things, let's face it, we won't see this type of heaven, the, the purpose, the meaning of certain things. But there are other things, too. We see the Lord working. We see his purpose working out in our lives, and we see his hand on us. But it's very tough when we're going through things, you know, to see the horizon there, to see the end, because we're kind of, you know, we're trying to get to the light. We're kind of, you know, fumbling through this. What I want to encourage everyone tonight with is simply this. No matter where you're at in your Christian walk, just hang in there, because God, sooner or later, is going to, you know, do what he's promised to do. Sometimes it seems a lot longer than we think it should be. Sometimes it seems impossible to bear. But he'll get you through it as he's gotten through his people historically. And he is, again, a very, very, very faithful God. And so Bible prophecy has a number of things that are helpful. Number one, it tells us there is a God who exists, who makes specific predictions about the future, 
predictions which come to pass, which we can observe. Prediction A being made here in the Bible. Then, of course, commentators living a couple hundred years ago, uh, you know, highlighting that prediction, saying this is what's going to happen at the time of the end, although we're not here to see it. And here we are in 2018 watching it fulfilled in front of our eyes. So intellectually, we see that it's true. But now we have to personalize it. We have to say, all right, God, you, you keep your word, and you promise me certain things, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe it, even though I can't see it. Now, this is what faith is all about, and this is what God expects from us. We've seen God work. We've seen him connect the dots. We've seen the wonderful things that he's done in our lives, and we know he loves us. We know he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. So what we need to do is take what we learn about Bible prophecy, about what's gone on in the world, what is going on, and personalize it and help us get us through the day. And realize this, Lord, as tough as it seems, as tough as things might be, there is an end game to all of this. There really is. And so we don't have to really worry about, you know, where we're going to end up because we know where we're going to end up. We're going to end up in the presence of the Lord, right? One way or another, uh, either by the rapture of the church or we go the other way where we see him. But we're going to see him. We're going to see him face to face. Now, in doing so, this is a time a time of pre preaching the gospel, of time of working, and a time which we have the freedom to do it. We've talked about this on his channel. I've talked about this to a lot of different people. I've talked about this to Tom. We're fortunate right now where we are able to freely preach the gospel, at least here in America. There are certain countries we would go into. We couldn't say what we're saying here tonight, Western countries, because certain things we say is, is deemed as hate speech when we quote the Bible and quote what God says is going to take place. But we've got freedom to do this. But really now, while we have this wonderful freedom to do it, while we see, and uh, one of the signs, it, it was funny, I, um, right after I did the book about oh, eight or nine months ago, I spoke in um, uh, uh, um, oh, Seal Beach. And as the pastor and his wife, a wonderful couple, Joe and Kathleen, afterwards asked me, okay, Don, of the 25 signs you're seeing, which is the one that hits you the most and the one you're seeing the most obvious? And I said, well, actually, there's two of them here that are becoming so real to me. And that is, I think there's signs number 17 and 18, which is lawlessness and violence. I said, I've never seen people today so unhinged in my life here in America where their heads are exploding. And you're seeing, we're seeing it right now, aren't we? The, the hatred that's there, the volatility against us for being Christians, believe, being believers in Jesus Christ. Um, we see it on the university campus. My daughter, my oldest daughter, you know, just graduated from Duke. I think, did I mention that to you? That she, did I mention she graduated highest honors there too? I didn't, okay, summa cum laude, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Did I, did I mention uh, she was one of 32 out of 2 million graduating seniors that won a Rhodes Scholarship? Did I tell you that? No. So anyway, yeah. And so, uh, well, we, yeah, that's, that's my oldest, Gabby. And, 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 and her, her and her sister, Kelsey, say the same thing. You know, on the, if you go to college, it's assumed you have only one point of view. They're the progressive point of view. Nobody holds another point of view if you even bring up the possibility. And she says, this is my friends. I talk about this. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? Are you some type of Neanderthal? It's one of these groupthink things, you know, where everybody thinks the same way. And the problem is, if you don't think that way, people are not only becoming more lawless against us, they're going to be more violent 
to us because they cannot stand it. So it's real interesting this is happening because one of the ancient commentators I read from the 19th century, he said something there that clicked. He said, this lawlessness, like it was there, it was in the days of Noah, is inside every unbeliever. But at the time of the end, and he's living 100 odd years ago, at the time of the end, it's going to come so much to the forefront, what, what's really in their heart is going to start to you know, boil over, and we'll start seeing it more and more and more. And that's exactly what they're seeing. People cannot stand us because we're Christians. They hate us. They want to get rid of us. And again, you know, we've seen all these uh, unhinged people exploding heads in that because of uh, their way is not coming to pass right now. So we're at a reprieve. But let me tell you, when these folks someday get back in power, guess who's going to have the bullseye and all, all the, Yeah, it's us, right? Well, okay, so let's, while we've got a chance, and we will do it even when we don't have a chance, but let's do it now and take advantage of this time and preach the gospel and live for Christ. We've got a wonderful opportunities. Like I said, you got one of the greatest pastors in the whole country here, Tom, doing that. You really do. And you're, you should be very thankful for that. But... <clears throat> As we get closer to the time, as we see these things being fulfilled, remember, lawlessness and violence is going to continue to abound. We're going to see it. We have seen it. Just a little foretaste of what's coming. But again, at the time, here's the good news. As we said last, two weeks ago, we're going to win in the end simply because Jesus Christ has died and risen and he's uh, okay, ascended to heaven. He's going to come back again someday to judge the living and the dead. And you and I, because we're in Christ, we are on the side of victory. Amen. All right?